Welcome. The following presentation from Answers in CME is part of an educational activity titled Enhancing Outcomes in Adults and Children with Eosinophilic Esophagitis by Targeting Type 2 Inflammation. To access the full program and supporting materials, please visit the activity URL in the episode description. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi. Hello, my name is Dr. Ika Harano, and I am a professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Today, I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Gary Falk, professor of medicine from my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia. In this first session, Dr. Falk and I will review the rationale for targeting type 2 inflammation in the OE. Dr. Falk, can you start by telling us why type 2 inflammation is an important target in the treatment of EOE? Thanks so much, Eco. Well, at the end of the day, EOE is a type 2 inflammatory disease, and it's more than just eosinophils. And this slide is a nice example of the pathogenesis of EOE at a 30,000-foot view. Predisposed individuals are exposed to aeroallergens and food allergens that then leads to immune activation in a predisposed individual that leads to a cascade of events starting with immune cell activation cytokine production, and a variety of pathways that include activation of eosinophils and mast cells that are shown here. So at the end of the day, there are a variety of type 2 inflammatory pathways that are activated in this disease. It's not just the eosinophil that matters, but all these other cytokines and inflammatory pathways that contribute to the pathogenesis of eosinophilic esophagitis. So, Eco, is there anything else you would add on the implications of targeting type 2 inflammation in EOE? That was a great summary, Gary. I think one thing I would call out is the consequences of that ongoing type 2 inflammation, which was shown on the right-hand side of that figure. We had the consequences of loss of barrier function and important sub-epithelial tissue remodeling, which is fibrosis. And that really is what drives most of the complications that we see in adults, namely stricture formation, the required dilation, and risk of food impaction. In the next session, we're going to discuss the current management algorithm for EOE and take a look at which biologics are currently approved or being investigated in late-stage clinical trials. Our current treatment paradigm of EOE has evolved based on our increased understanding of the disease pathogenesis. Eco, could you walk us through the current treatment algorithm? Sure, Gary. One of the great things about diagnosing EOE is not only can we make a positive diagnosis, but we have very effective treatments to offer to our patients. So when you have a newly diagnosed patient, I think one of the main branch points for management is whether you're going to start with medical therapy or diet therapy. And this is a great example of shared decision-making. I would say many patients in my practice come to me with an idea that they'd rather do diet or rather do medications, but we discussed these options. For medical therapeutics, we have proton pump inhibition and swallowed topical corticosteroids, and most recently, the FDA approval of dipilumab biologic therapy for medical management of EOE. For dietary therapy, we have three options, empiric elimination, the most common being the six-food elimination diet, elemental diet, and allergy testing-directed diets. If patients do not respond to dietary therapy, they can cross over to medical therapy and vice versa. Once you have a patient in effective clinical remission on medical or dietary therapy, it is important to consider the role of esophageal dilation to deal with clinically relevant esophageal strictures, that is, strictures that are driving symptoms of dysphagia. Once a patient is in remission, symptomatically, endoscopically in terms of stricture formation, and histologically, we have to consider the role of maintenance therapy. We know that EOE is a chronic disease. If you stop your induction therapy, the patients will relapse. We currently have only one biologic therapy, dipilumab, approved for patients with EOE. Dr. Falk will now tell us the current indication for this approved biologic therapy and other biologics that are under investigation. 
So to review, dupilumab is FDA approved for patients 12 years and older, weighing more than 40 kilograms. Its recommended dosing is 300 milligrams given subcutaneously once per week. There are a variety of other biologics that have undergone clinical trial or undergoing clinical trial at present time. The best way to look at this is that a variety of compounds here, some focus on eosinophil exclusively, such as lantilumab, benralizumab, and mepolizumab, and others focus on other pathways, such as tentacumab, which focuses on IL-13. Other pathways now being looked at include immune modulation, so really decreasing the immune response, so further upstream in that type 2 inflammatory response. Finally, at the bottom of the slide, you'll see there is a new compound whose primary mode of action is to inhibit mast cells. Next, we're going to look at the efficacy data of the approved biologic therapy, as well as biologics that are currently being investigated in late-stage clinical trials. We now are lucky enough to have exciting data on biologics targeting type 2 inflammation. Let's hear now from Dr. Ron about the efficacy data on dupilumab. The phase 3 clinical trial program that led to the FDA approval of dupilumab is depicted here. We can see the results from Part A. This was the induction phase of the study. Here we see a significant reduction in symptoms of dysphagia measured by the DSQ compared to placebo. Part B tested dupilumab at two different doses. Here we see significant benefit for symptoms only with dupilumab given on a weekly basis. And Part C was the extended active treatment going out for an additional 28 weeks for 52-week exposure, basically maintenance of that symptomatic response for patients who got dupilumab on a weekly basis. The second part of the co-primary endpoint looked at histopathology. We see Part A data for dupilumab. 59% of patients achieved that very stringent threshold compared to only 5% with placebo. In Part B, the comparable proportion of patients with dupilumab given weekly or every two weeks achieved that histologic threshold compared to only 6% with placebo. For Part C, maintenance of the initial induction response histologically continued suppression of eosinophilia with both the patients who initially got placebo and the patients who initially got dupilumab on a weekly basis. A number of other biologics are in clinical trials. Dr. Falk, what do we know about the efficacy of these emerging biologics so far? Looking at lirantilumab, benralizumab, and mepolizumab, they all share in common the goal of eosinophil depletion as the only effect of the compound. And each of these drugs led to a dramatic improvement in histologic features, and none of the drugs improved symptoms at all. Dupilumab has also been looked at in children, and that showed a significant proportion of patients that achieved histologic remission, both at high and low dose weight-adjusted regimens. Sendacumab is a targeted therapy looking at IL-13, and that shows significant improvements in histology and endoscopic features in the phase two trial that was not powered to look at symptoms. And the phase three trial, which is still ongoing, is looking at all of these features, namely histology, endoscopy, and symptoms. So again, a targeted IL-13 antibody versus targeted therapy directed at eosinophils only versus other aspects of the TH2 response. Nico, any thoughts on why there's improvement in histologic features, but no symptomatic improvement with these emerging therapies? I think we're all learning with these clinical trials, with these very focused targeted therapies about the pathogenesis of EOE. And some of the paradigms that we've held for the past uh, couple of decades are turning out maybe not to be as hard and fast as we once thought. It does appear that eosinophil is not playing a central role, at least in symptom generation, in eosinophilic esophagitis. In the next session, let's look at the safety profiles of approved and emerging biologic therapies for the treatment of EOE. First, let's hear about the safety data on dupilumab from Dr. Hirano. Overall, the safety data from the phase three clinical trial program was excellent. 
adverse events were comparable were seen between placebo and dipilimab patients. Some common AEs that were seen in greater than 10% of patients and associated with dipilimab included injection site reactions and nasal pharyngitis. Overall, the drug is extremely safe. There are no black box warnings and no need for therapeutic drug monitoring or any baseline lab testing. Now let's hear from Dr. Falk regarding the safety profiles of other biologics in clinical trials. Well, looking at the other biologics, there are a variety of adverse events that have been described. Lerentilumab is an IV formulation, so there were infusion-related adverse events and headaches with that. With benalizumab, there were no new safety signals. With mepolizumab, injection site reactions. Dupilumab, you've heard about. In adults and children, there seemed to be a little bit more in the way of COVID-19, rash, and some headache. And for sedacumab, the most common adverse events are headache and upper respiratory tract infection. Dr. Rano, is there anything notable about the long-term side effects with biologic therapies that you observe in your own clinical practice? Well, the one certainly I've had the most experience with has been dupilumab. And overall, in the patients that I've been using it on, it's been very well tolerated. There are reports of adverse events with dupilumab in other clinical settings. As you know, dupilumab has already been FDA approved for several years for treating other type 2 inflammatory diseases that include moderate to severe asthma, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, and chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. And in other indications, there have been reports of rare cases of conjunctivitis that can lead to need to stop the pilumab in cases. Also, arthritis, which occurred in the phase three clinical trial program for UE, noted arthralgias in 2% of patients compared to 1% with placebo. So again, an uncommon side effect, but one that can lead to a need to stop the pilumab if it's more significant degrees of arthritis or arthralgia. In the next session, we'll discuss when to consider biologic therapy for the treatment of EOE in adults and children. The American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology recently provided some guidance on when to use dupilumab. Could you comment on it, Dr. Falk, and if you do anything differently in your own clinical practice? I think one of the most important points to make right now is that we have an FDA-approved drug and we're comparing it with drugs that are not FDA-approved. But this is not saying that we should simply be dispensing in every individual. Where is this first-line therapy? Certainly, if there are multiple significant comorbid atopic conditions, including asthma, atopic dermatitis, chronic rhinitis with nasal polyps. But that does not include simple PRN inhalers for asthma, simple to control atopic dermatitis, and simple chronic rhinitis. And then the other situation is someone with a strong preference to avoid dietary restriction or swallow topical steroids. There are patients who are on multiple other topical steroids, for example, for asthma, atopic dermatitis, or chronic rhinitis that may want to avoid an additional steroid exposure. Now, for step up therapy, perhaps it's a little bit more clear. Certainly in the area of difficult-to-treat or refractory eosinophilic esophagitis to other therapies, this is an excellent option that we have for patients. In children, failure to thrive, poor growth, or significant weight loss are considerations. Also, if there is a frequent use of rescue medications for dietary restrictions or requirement of an elemental diet, and also for individuals with significant esophageal strictures or narrow-caliber esophagus, narrow-caliber esophagus is the worst end-stage aspect of the disease. And finally, if there are adverse events to therapies being used. PPIs are well-tolerated, but have well-known adverse events such as diarrhea and headache. Corticosteroids can lead to a fungal infection that may be recurrent. Is there anything that you do differently or would like to add to what's been said? 
my own clinical practice very much mirrors yours. I will mention that the phase three clinical trial dupilumab only enrolled patients who were PPI non-responders. So 100% of patients who went into the phase three program had not had a histologic response to eight weeks or more of high-dose PPI therapy. In addition, about half the patients in the phase three clinical trial program were steroid intolerant or steroid non-responders or had some contraindication to steroids. And those patients actually responded as well to dupilumab as patients who had not seen steroids. Let's summarize the key take-home points. First of all, it's important to recognize that eosinophilic esophagitis is more than just about eosinophils. It is a complex type 2 inflammatory disease where eosinophils are just one aspect of the disease pathogenesis. Secondly, we have multiple very effective therapies and the ultimate decision what to do involves shared decision-making. And we now finally have an FDA-approved compound, dupilumab, with the option of using this as first-phase therapy in certain selected individuals and certainly as a salvage option in individuals who have not responded to the currently used therapies. Thank you for listening. Please visit the activity URL in the episode description to view all program materials, complete the post-test, and get a certificate.